All right, well, let's jump into it. Open your Bible if you brought it, or open your uh, phone if you didn't, (laughs) and Google Galatians. (laughs) We're going to be starting today, we're starting a series on Galatians. We're just going to go verse by verse through Galatians, and uh, I'm thrilled. I'm really excited about it. You guys, you know, we spent months going through Destined to Rain, and um, I'm going to read some from it here in just a little while, but this thing has transformed my mind in a lot of different ways. It's such a good book. I'd highly recommend it. But Galatians is essentially destined to reign in the Bible from Paul, okay? Um, So we're going to just continue talking about grace and God's amazing grace for us. So a few behind the scenes about Galatians. Uh, There's some debate about this, but uh, some people think Paul's first letter was 1 Thessalonians, but some people think it was Galatians. Um, I think probably Galatians. Because of the context and the content of what he's talking about, he's so fierce about protecting the purity of grace and the gospel of grace. And so a lot of people think this was his first letter to the churches. Um, Galatia, was it a city? Yes or no? Sharon, getting your masters in this stuff. You can't say it before everybody else says it. Um, Galatia was not a city. Okay, Galatia was an area. It was a region um, inside the Roman Empire. It was called Central Asia. Um, today, Turkey is where Galatia would be located. And there was two parts. There was a northern part and there was a southern part. Um, in the southern part, there were cities that you probably have heard of, such as Antioch, Iconia, uh, Iconium, sorry, Lystra, Derby. And Paul spent a lot of time in the southern part of Galatia. And so he's built churches in these places, and now he's sending a letter back to these guys to encourage the whole church about the gospel of grace. Um, He spent his missionary journeys going through this area with Barnabas, his first and his second. Paul was born in Galatia in Tarsus, which was a a part of Galatia. So he was born there, and then he grew up in Jerusalem. So Galatia was a lot of Romans, a lot of Gentiles, and then a decent chunk of Jews. So he grew up in that mix, and then he spent his childhood in Jerusalem learning under the priests and the rabbis and everything, and then he ends up spending the rest of his life reaching these people. Um, And he spent a considerable time teaching in the region, okay? So without further ado, open up to Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from a new translation. It's called the Passion Translation. And I really like the way it, it uh, comes together. It's kind of like the message or kind of like the kingdom translation that I love also. So I'm going to be reading through here. But just open up and we'll go verse by verse in whichever version you have. Verse 1. My name is Paul. I've been commissioned as an apostle of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. You need to know that my apostolic authority was not granted to me by any council of men. For I was appointed by Jesus, the anointed one, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Okay? So um, an apostle is somebody who is sent on mission and carries with him the delegated authority of the one who sent him. All right? Finnis Dake, who wrote the, the Dake Bible, one of my favorite study Bibles, here's how he says it. He says, apostles, a delegate, one sent with full power of attorney, to act in the place of another, the sender remaining behind to back up the sent one. In the case of Christians, it means God sends them to do what he himself would do if he went. Isn't that good? It's found 78 times 
as apostle. It's found two times as messenger. It's found one time as he that is sent. In the New Testament, there were 24 apostles. You had the 12 disciples who were uh, 12 apostles. And then you also had Barnabas, Machias, Andronicus, Junia, who was a woman, apostle. <gasps> Apollos, who was not full of the Holy Spirit until Priscilla and Aquila showed him the way. Um, but he was still considered an apostle. James, Jesus' brother, Silas, Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, Paul, and Jesus himself. The ultimate apostle. Amen? All right. So the Romans were very familiar with the word apostle. Okay? They understood the apostle ships because Rome at the time had this brilliant strategy of taking over the world. The Roman Empire, the most powerful, amazing empire in all of the land at that time. This was their strategy. They would look at Rome and say, who is the best in our whole society? Who are the best bakers? Who are the best musicians? Who are the best artists? Who are the best teachers, politicians? And they would look across the whole board, the seven mountains of society, if you will. And they would find the very best. And they would say, we want you to go to this nation where we want to overtake someday in the future. And so they would send these people, a whole group from Rome, and they would send them on ships to this place. And then once they showed up, they would arrive and they would set up shop in that town. And they very simply would live like a Roman in that town. They would go live like a Roman in the foreign culture, okay? And then after a number of years, all of the people around would be watching how they live, and they would realize, your food is amazing. Your sanitary habits are amazing. Your art is the best. Everything you do is better than what we do. This is incredible. And then they would get a message. Hey, Rome is coming to town. The army is coming to take over this land. You have two choices, be adopted into Rome peacefully and enjoy everything that we enjoy. Or, option two, be decimated by the army. Your choice. Right? And, and so many nations would simply surrender to Rome, to the Roman Empire, to become a part of it because they would see the culture of Rome and how it's so much better because Rome had infused their culture in that society and then they would just naturally come on board to be a part of the Roman Empire. Isn't that cool? So they would send all of those ships to that area. You know what that first ship was called? The Apostle Ship. The first sent ship, okay? So the Romans understood this word apostle. And that's what Paul is saying he is. He said, I am a sent one from God himself. How was Paul commissioned? On the road to Emmaus, Paul was commissioned. He was not looking to serve Jesus at all. He was going to murder Christians who served Jesus. He was on his way. He had an encounter with the living God. Jesus shows up. He's blinded. And he turns in a moment. And he changes his whole life for the Lord. God sovereignly picked Paul. No one man selected Paul to do what he was doing with his life. God picked him to be a sent one. Paul had no intention to follow Jesus, but Jesus picked Paul. Paul didn't need anyone else to recognize that calling on his life, which I love, okay? Paul didn't need any man to look at him and say, you know, God's called you for something mighty. You should do that. And then he said, oh, yeah, I'll go do that. No, he didn't need that. God called him, and he obeyed God just like that. So what's that mean for you? If God has called you to do something with your life, you don't need any man to look at you and say, go and do it. 
What you need is to obey God and what he's called you to do. Amen? Some people throughout history you find that have been sovereignly selected like Paul was. There's a guy named William Branham from the 50s. And from his birth, he was a a tremendous prophet and revivalist. Literally on the day he was born, an angel shows up in his unsaved mother's shed as he's being born. And then throughout his whole life as a childhood, unsaved guy, an angel of the Lord shows up to change the course of his life and direct him in the right place. He was sovereignly picked by God. Other people, like William Seymour, who started the Azusa Street Revival, sovereignly picked by God. And Paul was one of these guys, sovereignly picked by God. He wasn't looking for it. All right. But what you need to remember, if God commissioned Paul and no man called him or appointed him, then you can be selected by God as well, and that's okay. That's biblical. Do not shun the call of God because man has not confirmed it. Obey God instead. Amen? Okay, look at verse 2. Paul says this. I am joined by all the Christians who are here with me as I write you this letter which is to be distributed to the churches throughout the region of central Turkey. So Paul says he's writing the letter in the company of all the believers with the support of all the believers. And the letter's purpose, it was like a memo, like a company organization memo. Um, So that he's sending this to all the believers. Hey guys, quick uh, theological corrections. Everybody pay attention to this. So they'd write the letter. Somebody would run it to the church. They'd show up to the synagogue. They'd show up to the town center. They'd show up to the, the house church, and they'd take the letter. And they'd, guys, come here, come here. We've got the, got the letter. We've got to read this. And they'd read it out loud, and they would discuss it, and they would talk it through, and they would find the things that they didn't like about it that they did, and hopefully they would adopt what was being said. And then the runner would go to the next place, and he'd read it again and, and pass it on to all the churches of the area, Okay. Verse 3, most translations will simply say, grace to you and peace from our Father and Jesus Christ. Raise your hand if that's kind of what yours says. Simple. Buzzes by your head. Here's how it says in, uh, well, before that. Peace, in many translations here, it means health, prosperity, peace, and total well-being. Okay, so let's expand Grace and peace to you. Let's expand that a little bit. Paul is saying health, prosperity, total well-being to you. And remember what we learned from Cheon a while back when we're talking about finances. Prosperity is not being rich. Prosperity is to be led along the right road, to be led along a good path. That's prosperity. So the Passion Translation says it this way, verse 3. I pray over you a release of the blessings of God's undeserved kindness. And total well-being, well-being that flows from our Father God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? I love that. Paul says, I pray a release over you, over the, the blessings of God upon your life. The unmerited, undeserved kindness of God. I'm praying it over your life. And here's what's interesting. Who is he writing to? He's writing to essentially enemies of the gospel of grace. He's praying an unmerited blessing of God upon the enemies of the gospel of grace. What would happen in your life when you have an enemy or you have a conflict with somebody, if before you say a word, you take a moment and you pray a release of the blessings of God's undeserved kindness and total well-being that flows from the Father God from our Lord Jesus Christ? What would happen? Your, your conflicts would be a whole lot easier, right? It doesn't make sense, but this is what Paul does, and this is what we should do as well. 
verses 4 and 5, says this. He's the anointed Messiah who offered his soul as the sacrifice for our sins. He has taken us out of this evil world system, and he set us free through our salvation, just as God desired. All the glory will go to God alone throughout time and eternity. Amen. Amen? So it says he's taken us out of this evil world system and set us free through our salvation just as God desired. So what is the evil world system? The evil world system is our flesh. It's a system of self-righteousness based upon your works, upon your religious doings, and upon upholding the law. That's the evil world system being spoken of. We were born into that system, but Jesus removed us completely from that system. He didn't, he didn't come and like give the answer to that system. He completely removed you out of that system altogether. Okay? Adam stepped into that evil world system. He dragged us into that system. And right from the beginning, God was showing us that he was going to cover over our shortcomings. So remember that Adam and Eve, before the fall, actually didn't believe themselves to be naked. Okay? I think this is an interesting little aside. But they, they didn't have a problem with their nakedness. Why? It's because they were primarily, before they fell, primarily spirit beings. And they were clothed with their flesh. Okay? They had no problem. They were clothed. They were fully clothed. Because they're spirit beings and they're clothed with their flesh. And when they sinned, they stepped out of being primarily spirit beings and they moved more into the evil world system. They stepped into their flesh and all of a sudden now they don't have any clothes on. Isn't that interesting? So Adam moved into that system, but Jesus came to pull you out of that system. Amen? Say hallelujah. All right. Verse 4 and 5 again, it says, He's the anointed Messiah who offered his soul as the sacrifice for our sins. He's taken us out of this evil world system and set us free through our salvation, just as God desired. All the glory will go to God alone throughout time and eternity. Amen and amen and amen. Okay, verse 6. Paul says, I am shocked over how quickly you have deserted the grace gospel and strayed away from the anointed one who called you to himself by his loving mercy. Raise your hand if your version says marvel. Raise your hand if your version says astonished. Okay? So shocked, astonished, or marveled. The Greek word is thalmadso, and it means to wonder at or to be had in admiration. Okay? The mad so, to wonder at or to be had in admiration, but it's the opposite kind of admiration, okay? At first glance, it's like, oh, let's adore that thing. Let's admire that thing. No, this is the, the other, like, oh, I'm admiring how awful this thing is, okay? So um, have you ever been inside a hoarder's house or apartment? Anybody? A couple people. And you go in and you are shocked, you marvel at the situation. How could you live this way? It makes no sense in your brain. I was at a showing about a month ago, and uh, we go to this house. It was a hoarder's house, and it was on five acres. And walking to the house, it's filled with, the land is filled with stuff. We get to this nice, large metal shop. The shop is full, floor to like eight feet tall of stuff, okay? 
And then the weeds and the grass are just so overgrown, it's unbelievable. And then you walk to the house, and we didn't even go inside the house because you open the house, and it's full, completely full, hasn't been touched in years and years and years. Somebody still lives there. No power, no electricity, human feces on the ground. The smell overwhelming you causes us to back off the porch, turn away. As we turn away, the section that's full of RVs behind the house, this dude walks out. And he walks away. And we're like, <laughs> we were marveling. And the whole walk back to the car, we're like, kind of like, who's around? But also like, oh my gosh, how can you live that way? We were marveling, okay? That is what Paul is doing here. He's looking at these guys who have found freedom through real grace, through Jesus. And he's marveling that they've turned and gone the other way back to the law, back to their own self-righteousness. Okay? He says, I'm shocked over how quickly you've deserted the grace gospel and strayed away from the anointed one who called you to himself by his loving mercy. Paul is dumbfounded at how quickly they removed themselves from Jesus. Where was Jesus? The grace gospel. And they have walked away from the grace gospel. They have walked away from Jesus. They have removed themselves. In Passion Translation, it says, straight away from the anointed one. King James Version says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that, you, that called you into the grace of Christ unto the gospel. Unto another gospel. The Greek word for removed, it means transfer or transport. To exchange, change sides, or to pervert. Okay? You remember the old Verizon commercials? Can you hear me now? 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 That man has transported himself. He has removed himself into another company. Right? I switched, so can you. Come over here, right? That's, that's the word we're talking about, switching sides. From this side to that side, Paul says, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. You have left Jesus, and you've gone back to this other gospel. What are you doing? Verse 6 continued. Then Paul says, and frankly, I'm astounded that you now embrace a distorted gospel of salvation by works. The Aramaic word for the gospel, it simply reads, the hope. Okay, which is so good because when you think of growing up in a world, evil world system based on your works and based on your fulfillment of the law, it's hopeless and you cannot satisfy the law. Then all of a sudden Jesus comes with hope. Oh my gosh, I might could actually be right before God. How beautiful. They simply called it the hope. They didn't call it the gospel. They didn't call it the good. They called it the hope, our hope of salvation. So this phrase is the whole purpose of writing Galatians. I'm frankly astounded that you now embrace a distorted gospel of salvation by works. They've embraced salvation by works and Jesus. Jesus plus. They decided the gospel of grace was simply too good to be true and they needed to do more in order to be right with God. They lived for a while just in grace. And then they're like, there's no way this can be real. Surely we need to go to church on Sundays. Surely we need to obey this rule or do that law. They couldn't believe it. And so they mixed grace and doing together, thinking that's really how you get right with God. Okay? But grace, it's a pure substance. It cannot be mixed with anything else. Say, it cannot be mixed 
with anything else. Say grace cannot be mixed with anything else. It's like a chemical reaction. When you mix X plus Z, that substance then forever changes to a completely different substance. When you try to mix grace with something else, it's no longer grace. We're, we're building a house. We're going to have a pool at our new house. So we've been learning about pools. We've been learning about saltwater pools. Because apparently, saltwater pools, you have to use a lot less chemicals to do the same work that a, that a chlorine pool uses. Why is that? It's because they use a process called electrolysis in the presence of dissolved salt to produce hypochlorous acid and sodium hypochlorite, a.k.a. chlorine. There's a chemical reaction that happens when they take dissolved salt with water and they zap it with electrolysis. It creates its own chlorine. How cool is that? Okay, so get this. Grace plus your faith equals salvation. It's a chemical reaction. It changes you forever. It permanently rescues you, and it permanently cleanses your junk and keeps you clean. Amen? Now, when you take grace and you mix it with works, it does the opposite. And it destroys the process of cleansing, and it will never cleanse you. It cannot be done. You cannot mix grace and law. You cannot mix grace and works. It does not work. Okay? Another way to look at it is like this. When you mix grace and law, it voids the warranty. Okay? So imagine that this is a bottle of, uh, like, imagine car additive, like gas additive. And it says, pure grace guaranteed to remove sin and make you right before God. Pretty cool, right? Okay, but then right below it has some fine print, and it says, mixing with other substances will void the guarantee. Okay? So I, I used to have a 2007 BMW 335i. Okay? It was a two-door coupe. It was a cool little car. I was way too big for that cool little car. <laughs> it was a six-cylinder twin turbo, 305 horsepower, okay? But if you change that little computer chip, all of a sudden, just like that, by swapping out one chip, putting in another, you're producing 415 horsepower because you're boosting the turbos. You're changing the way it works. But if you mess with the computer chip, you void all warranties, okay? That's kind of how grace is. Here's, here's the promise. It will take care of you. It will wash you. This is all you need. But if you mess with it by adding works to it or the law, psh, voided warranty. It ain't going to work anymore. All right? So for me, this is a, a profound concept that's been illuminated the last four months or so as I've been reading this book. And I'll just plug it one more time. Okay? Um, I, I had never listened to Joseph Prince I never wanted to listen to Joseph Prince. I was laying in bed months ago, and he popped in my newsfeed on Facebook, and the Holy Spirit said, watch him. I watched him, and I was like, wow, that's a really good word. The Holy Spirit said, go check out Amazon. I checked out Amazon. This book is right there. The Holy Spirit said, you better buy that thing. I said, okay. I bought it. A couple days later, I'm like, why am I reading Joseph Prince? What am I doing? And oh my goodness, changed my life, okay? It corrected a whole lot of stuff. Greg has told me several times how it's completely changing his thinking on grace and law. McCoby's told me. Melody's told me. I think everybody reading it has told me, wow, this is amazing. I thought I believed right before. I genuinely did. 
And maybe in a tiny little piece I did, but I didn't understand the fullness, okay? So this concept I've been learning through this book, here's what it is. When you come to God in grace, every time he will turn back to you and respond with grace. When you come to God under your own standing in the law, every time God will turn back to you and hold up the pure law. Two verses to look at. Exodus 19, verse 8. The Hebrew text, I'm, I'm just going to read this quote from the book. Hebrew text says, the, the Israelites literally told God, all that God requires and demands of us, we are well able to perform. Right? In, the, in, the, in our translations, it makes it sound like, okay, everything God says we'll do. But when you really look at what the Hebrew says, it is a boastful, proud statement. All God says to do, we can do. Okay? So they've come out of the Red Sea. They've been delivered. And every time they grumble and complain, God shows up with grace and provides a miracle. And all of a sudden, in this one moment, bam, everything changes. And they say, God, judge us based on what we can do. And God has to change his stance towards them. Instead of bringing grace, he has to bring law. So let me read this to you. In other words... This is from Joseph Prince. In other words, they're saying, God, stop assessing or blessing us based on your goodness. Start assessing, judging, and blessing us based on our obedience. And so they effectively exchanged covenants from the Abrahamic covenant, which is based on grace, to the Sinaitic covenant, which is based on law. All this while, God was with them, and he had fought for them. He opened the Red Sea. He rained manna from heaven and brought water out of the flinty rock, even though they kept murmuring and complaining. But the moment they said those prideful words, God had to change his tone. He told Moses to instruct the people not to go near the mountain, for whoever touches the mount will surely be put to death. Why do you think God changed his demeanor here? It's because man presumed on his own strength and entered into a covenant based on his obedience. This is what we call self-righteousness. Since the people wanted to be judged based on their performance, in the very next chapter, God gave them the Ten Commandments. And from then on, since they boasted that they could do all that God commanded, God had to assess them based on his laws. He would bless them if they kept his covenants, but they would be cursed if they failed to do so. Wow. Wow, even though they're complaining and grumbling, God still gave grace. He still gave grace. He still gave grace. But as soon as they changed their tone and became prideful, God had to change his tone too. And he brought law to them. Another place we see this with Jesus. This is Luke 18, 18, verses 18 through 23. This is again from the book. This is with a rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now think about this question for a moment. Somebody comes to Jesus and says, hey, how do I get saved? What would be the right evangelical answer? Believe in me and you will be saved. Plain and simple, right? But that's not what Jesus says. Instead, Jesus gave him the law of Moses saying, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus gave him the Ten Commandments. Why? Because the young ruler came with pride, believing that he could do something to earn or deserve eternal life. Whenever you come boasting in your own efforts, Jesus 
will give you the law of Moses. Now listen to what the young man said in response to Jesus. All these things I've kept from my youth. Amazing. This man actually claimed that he had kept all the Ten Commandments from his youth. And like the Pharisees, some people really think that they're able to keep all the laws of Moses, knowing that they have lowered God's law to a place where they think it can be kept. But Jesus came to bring back the law to its pristine standard. Not only must there be an outward adherence to the law, there must be an inward adherence. And so Jesus showed that God's law is beyond man's own efforts. The young man was probably expecting Jesus to compliment him on his law keeping. He was feeling really confident of himself. I did it all. But notice what Jesus said to him. Instead of complimenting him, he said, only one thing you still lack. You see, every time you boast in your law keeping, Jesus will find something that you lack. In this case, he told the young man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor and follow him. Interesting. He came in the law. He received the law in his purity. But in the very next chapter, in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, this is a story about Zacchaeus who climbed the tree. Zacchaeus was wicked, but instead of giving him the Ten Commandments, Jesus showed him grace and undeserved favor and invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. And before dinner was over, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus smiled at Zacchaeus and he said to him, Today salvation has come to your house. Okay? Joseph says, I believe that this was the Holy Spirit who put these two stories side by side. I don't believe that they happen chronologically. I believe that the Holy Spirit placed them in this divine order to show us the contrasting effects of being under the covenant of law and being under the covenant of grace. When the rich young ruler came boasting in his law keeping, Jesus answered with the law. And the young man could hardly give a dollar to Jesus and walked away sad. But in the very next chapter, when Jesus gave no law but showed grace, it not only opened Zacchaeus' heart, but it also opened his wallet. Isn't that good? When you come to Jesus wanting to earn your salvation by works, Jesus will respond to you with the strictest of law which you will never be able to fulfill. But if you come to Jesus standing on the gift of righteousness through grace, you will be overwhelmed, welcomed, and covered and accepted every single time. Say, that's good. Say, that's real good. Say, amen and hallelujah. That's good. I love that concept. I had it, I had it, recognize that concept before, but it's so true. And it's the truth of everybody's salvation. Jesus paid the sins for everybody. But when, when we come to Jesus thinking we did something good and we're going to be accepted into his kingdom, he has to respond with the law. But when we come in grace saying, I can't do this, I need you, then he every single time takes us in. Let's look at verse 7. Paul says this, that is a fake gospel that simply is not true there's only one gospel the gospel of the messiah and yet you've allowed those who mingle law with grace to confuse you with lies so paul plain as day he nails him for believing a lie about the gospel specifically mingling law with grace it completely voids the truth of the gospel you're right standing before god is not like a college exam with a weighted test result where the professor says, oh, you guys all failed miserably. Guess what? I'll just add 60 points to your grade and you'll all be fine. Okay? When I used to go preach the gospel to the youth in Norman, we'd always, hey, how do you get to heaven? Is it a scale system? No, it's not a scale system because they almost always think 
if I live a good enough life, I'll get to heaven, right? So at Baylor, I had this professor named Dr. Packard, all right? And uh, Rachel and I both had him. You didn't have him? I thought you did. <laughs> she said I knew I would fail it. So he was the physics professor. He had a freshman weed-out class, but he was probably world-renowned. He had his own auditorium, the Packard Auditorium. It had 400 seats, 500 seats. It was huge. And so he would teach the highest level of physics at Baylor for all the doctoral students and the master's students. And his brain operated in a completely different level than any human on the earth, okay? He was unbelievably smart. But for some crazy reason, they put him in charge of the freshman physics class, which was a weed-out class. I don't I never will understand why they did this. So freshman class, you show up, and there's hundreds of 18-year-old students in his class, and he's talking about the nerdiest, craziest stuff. So there's rumors about this man. Who knows if they're true, but supposedly he helped create the nuclear bomb. Supposedly he was tied in with the government so well that whenever there was a, a government issue of any kind, he would disappear randomly and show up a couple weeks later. I happened to be in his class on September 11th. 2001. And guess what? Dr. Packard disappeared for two weeks. Nobody knows where he went. Nobody knows what he did. He showed up two weeks later. He said, hey guys, everybody doing okay? All right, let's jump back into it. And he just went crazy again in his psychics, in his uh, physics. Might as well be the same thing. <laughs> but here's how bad it was. It was guaranteed that you would fail every quiz that he ever gave you. Guaranteed every person of the hundreds of people in the room, guaranteed you will never be able to comprehend what he has to say. So you look around the room with hundreds of other people, and I kid you not, there's, there's probably 30 people with newspapers wide open like this, reading the newspaper. There's another 50 asleep, just as, as blatant as you can possibly be asleep on their thing. There's another 100 on their phones, just hanging out, texting, doing whatever they want. And there's probably five people in the class who are like taking notes, trying to understand what in the world he's talking about. These are the smartest people. They got 1,600 on their SATs, and they can't figure out what the heck he's talking about, okay? So quiz day comes around, and it became a joke. All right, guys, we've got a pop quiz. Here we go. In the whole class, oh, the big groans, you know? He passes out the scantrons. He passes out the quiz. And you had the same chances of getting the same grade, whether you circled C on every single one, or if you just drew pictures, people would literally draw pictures with their scantrons on their scantrons, okay? It was hopeless. There was no hope in this man's class. And so he'd pass out the, the test results the next day. And guess what? Every single person of the hundreds failed miserably, all right? Highest grade in the class might be a 48. <laughs> but what would you do? He would grade on the curve. Oh, don't worry about it. I like you. I'm just going to give everybody 60 extra points every time, okay? <laughs> he was so bad that I, I, I was friends with a really smart girl named Michelle, that we grew up in youth group together, and every so often we'd go into his office and just kind of pick his brain a little bit, learn about him, whatever. Well, she ended up with, a, with an 89 in the class, all because of curved scores, but she really wanted an A because she was brilliant in high school. So she wanted to keep her 4.0. So we go into his office after the final exam. She's brought him cookies, and over in the pile on the side of his office, there's plates of cookies. <laughs> the man's diabetic. So he doesn't ever eat any of the cookies. 
She brings him cookies. She says, Dr. Packard, I got, my name is uh, Michelle. I got an 89. I was really hoping for a 90. Is there any way, is there anything I can do? And he said, oh, sure. And he's like 75, 80 years old. Oh, sure, sweetie. What's your name? And he'd flip open his book, and he'd look her up in the class, and he'd find, oh, yeah, 89. What, what score did you want? Okay. You write it in the new score. <laughs> All right? Now, here's the deal. Many people believe that when it comes to salvation, it's based on your works. Okay? I know, now, I know I can't ever get 100% with God, but I can probably get like a 40, which is better than 30. So I'm going to take my 40, and then God's going to grade me on the curve with the rest of his grace. And we'll mix the two together, and hopefully I'll be at 100%. God does not grade on the curve. Grace plus works does not work. Amen? Except for Dr. Packard. All right. So the Galatians apparently had started to teach and believe that you're saved by what Jesus did, yes, that's your extra 50 points. But also, you better go ahead and do X, Y, and Z if you want to be saved. When you mix the gospel of Jesus with doing good religious works, you are, viewed, you are viewing God like Dr. Packard. But that's not God. Your salvation is not based on a scale system. And the Bible says that all of your best works are like filthy rags to God. Isaiah 64, 6. There is literally not one thing you can do to change your standing before God. God is holy and perfect. You are not. There is no in-between. God does not grade on the curve. Either you are perfect or you are not. There is no gray area. And the only way to be perfect in God's sight is to receive the gift of righteousness Jesus died for you to have. Amen? All right. Last, last little bit. Verses 8 through 9. Paul says this. Anyone who comes to you with a different message than the grace gospel that you have received will have the curse of God come upon them. For even if we or an angel appears before you to give you a different gospel than what we have already proclaimed, God's curse will be upon them. Paul makes it even more strong how serious he is about this message of grace. And he says, I don't give a rip who teaches you that you need to do certain things to be accepted before God. Even if it's me teaching or if an angel of God comes before you and teaches you, you got to do something. Don't believe it. They will be cursed. And how can Paul say that they will be cursed? It's because when you willfully choose to submit yourself back under the law, you are stepping back into the curse that Adam and Eve brought into the world. And you step back into your own self-reliance, which will never be enough. The ministry of the law is death. The law kills. There's no, there's no other option. It shows you what you are not. Thus, the law puts you under the curse of being separated from God for eternity, truly cursed. So herein lies the issue of salvation for all mankind. The Bible says that Jesus has already paid for all man's sins. All sins have been paid for. Done deal. However, not all men are saved. Why not? Because it depends on man's attitude and positional standing before God. Man simply cannot stand before God righteously based on how he lives his life. It is not possible. Once you break one tiny part of the law, you're a lawbreaker and have fallen short of the law. Therefore, the only way to stand rightly before God is to rely 100% on his grace. 
And when you rely on his grace, when you come to him humble and recognize that you cannot live up to a standard, then and only then are you saved by grace. Amen? Amen, amen. We're going to stop there. Um, Verses 10 through 24 is uh, Paul talking about his bad past, but it's not so much teaching. So uh, next week we're going to focus on chapter 2. Amen? I hope that's helpful. I hope that's smashing some thinking in your brain about, oh, I better do this to be right before God because it ain't true. All right? Let's stand up together and pray. And if there's anybody that needs prayer for anything, several of us will be up front and we'll pray for you. So, Father, we just thank you. We love you. We love you. We love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that it's not grace plus. We thank you that it's only grace, that there's nothing we can do to be in right standing before you besides receive the gift of righteousness that you so graciously gave to us through Jesus dying on the cross. Father, we love you. Correct every mingling thought of law plus grace. Correct it. Eradicate it from our brains. Eradicate it from our spirits. And let us stand on grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.